This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Forget the frustration of picking commerce platforms when you switch your business to Shopify, the global commerce platform that supercharges your selling wherever you sell. With Shopify, you'll harness the same intuitive features, trusted apps, and powerful analytics used by the world's leading brands. Sign up today for your $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash tech, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash tech. Hey, everybody. As you probably know, uh, a few weeks ago, we announced that we were going to make a change at Majority 54. We were going to go to a format where nothing would change for you. You were still going to get this show in the exact same place that you've always gotten it, which is clearly what you did because you're listening to me right now. Uh, But we also were going to have a YouTube element of the show. Now, if you like listening to this show in an audio format, you don't got to do anything different. I'm only here to tell you that because we've also joined this YouTube-oriented network, the Midas Touch Podcast Network, we're still working with Wonder, but we're also working with Midas. Uh, As a result, uh, this episode that you're about to hear is not just being heard by the people, the, you know, many, many tens of thousands of you who uh, listen to this show every week already, it's also being listened to and watched by some people who may have never heard the show before. So at the beginning of this show, you will hear Ben Micellis of the Midas Touch Podcast Network introducing Ravi and I to his audience. So you're going to hear a bunch of stuff that you already know if you listen to this show all the time. You're going to hear him saying stuff about us. And then you're going to hear this show just like you always have. But I think, frankly, we're doing it better now. Uh, Just because Ravi and I sort of, as he likes to put it, renewed our vows, put a new energy into this. You're going to hear a lot more clips uh, and uh, hope you enjoy it. So anyway, we're glad to be back. Welcome back to Majority 54. Here comes the show. 54% of the country consistently votes for progress. Yet progressives are treated as if they're in the minority. Enough is enough. It's time to stop apologizing and let's act like the majority. That is why we are so excited to welcome to the Midas Touch Network, the Majority 54 Show, an award-winning podcast about what each of us in that 54 plus percent majority can personally do to maintain and grow that majority. You know what? The exhausted majority is exhausted no more. The co-hosts, Jason Kander and Ravi Gupta, draw on their award-winning experience winning unabashedly uh, pro-democracy campaigns in decidedly not progressive places. Let me tell you a little bit about them. Jason Kander is an Afghanistan veteran, a former Missouri state legislator and Missouri Secretary of State, a guy who very nearly ran for president in 2020, the author of two New York Times bestsellers, the founder of a major voting rights organization, the founder of another nonprofit that has saved over 2,000 Afghan allies from brutal Taliban retribution, the president of National Expansion at Veterans Community Project, and a frequent writer and speaker about his battle with post-traumatic stress. He's also a husband, a dad, an aging baseball player, sorry to give you that jab, and a little league coach. Heck, I thought that I did a lot. And Ravi Gupta is the founder of Arena, 
the largest ever training operation for Democratic staffers and has helped elect over 100 candidates to office in every region of the country. He's the CEO and founder of Lost Debate, a nonprofit media company focused on fighting disinformation and polarization. He's also a former school principal and superintendent and a former staffer for Obama's first campaign for president and speechwriter for Susan Rice. He's a graduate of Yale Law School and a proud son of Staten Island, New York. We are so happy here at the Midas Touch Network to welcome Majority 54. Let's grow that 54%. Welcome you two. We're so proud to have you here. Uh, thanks, man. We're, we're pumped to be a part of this. Uh, Ravi, I think we should have been on like every I know, show. I hype, man. Yeah. Like, By the way, Jason, I, you're an impressive guy. It's great. I, so you. are you. I, I, uh, ben should start every show, like telling yeah. people, be like, do we have to hear who these guys are again? But I, I really yeah. enjoyed it. Personally. I'm like, stop, Ben, but keep going. But, yeah. <laughs> uh, but I want to say, am I saying this right? The, the Midas Mighty, I want to say it's an honor to be here. And for the returning Majority 54 audience, we've missed you over the past few weeks. And it's really been a void in our lives. And I think it's, I've been so looking forward to getting back on the mic, Jason. I don't know about you. Yeah, me too. Uh, I, I am pumped. Um, you know, my son still is not impressed at the idea that I am a YouTuber in addition to a podcaster because <laughs> he's he's like, well, You're but like is Jake it a Paul, gamer right? show? Are you right. Mr. Beast? And I'm like, I'm decidedly not Mr. Beast. I'm and he, he's, you know, but uh, over time, political Mr. Beast. You're the political Jake Paul. Yeah, maybe I'll tell him that. Right? Yeah. yeah, yeah. I mean, he's nine. Over time, he'll grow an appreciation for us growing into the YouTube medium. But anyway, yeah, no, I, I'm super pumped to be with Midas here. And uh, all right, let's do a show. Well, okay. Biden has served up quite something last night uh, at the State of the Union address. And it's honestly, it's like getting wind in our sails to jumpstart this podcast again, because, you know, we, we at times will be honest about how we think about how Biden is doing. This was Biden at his absolute best and the GOP at their absolute worst. And there's probably no better place to start than when Biden talked about what the GOP has stated that they wanted what stated what they want to do with Social Security and Medicare, and uh, they heckled him. Jason, let's go to that clip. Instead of making the wealthy pay their fair share, some Republicans, some Republicans, want Medicare and Social Security to sunset. I'm not saying it's a majority. <laughs> Let me give you anybody who doubts it. Contact my office. I'll give you a copy. I'll give you a copy of the proposal. That means Congress doesn't vote. Well, I'm glad to see you. No, I tell you, I, I enjoy conversion. You know, it means if, if Congress doesn't keep the programs the way they are, they go away. Other Republicans say, I'm not saying it's a majority of you. I don't even think it's even a significant. But it's being proposed by individuals. I'm not politely not naming them, but it's being proposed by some of you. Look, folks, the idea is that we're not going to be we're, we're not going to be moved into being threatened to default on the debt if we don't respond. Folks. So, folks, 
as we all apparently agree, Social Security and Medicare is off the, off the books now, right? They're not to be sponsored. All right. We got unanimity. First of all, I've long been a fan of the British tradition of question time yes. where the prime minister goes in and it appears there's a two drink minimum of people who question <laughs> him. And uh, that that's like kind of what this was. If the prime minister just completely owned the people there, uh, that's the first thing. Uh, the second thing is it was like Blair. If you ever watched Blair back in the day, he used uh, to just absolutely slam uh, the conservatives. And, and that's and, and and I actually like. You know, the, the lack of decorum aside, I, I actually think some version, not in the State of the Union, mind you, but some version of question time would, would actually be a good thing. But For sure. but but so there's a couple of things here. One, uh, I, I've been in a legislative body before, and I can tell you that part of what was going on there, it, yes, there's been a coarsening of our, of our discourse, no doubt about it, over the last several years that's gotten us from the, the place where one guy yells, you lie. And several years later, I still remember his name. I think it was Joe Wilson, right? From South yep. Carolina. Yeah. You know, and, and everybody, it was like a brown suit level national scandal. And, and so, you know, that's where we've come from. But at the same time, it's not just the coarsening of the discourse. I've been in a legislative body. I can tell you, Ravi, these folks were pre-gaming. Okay. <laughs> yes. Before an event like this, when you don't have any responsibility, okay, right. you're just going to watch a speech. I promise you that these members, especially the Republicans who, you know, were not happy. And look, I bet some of the Democrats too, they had a few drinks before this. And you can tell. The second thing I'd say about this is that people should not underestimate that when Biden started to engage them, that was a high stakes gamble. All yeah, right. Like absolutely. you are you are going from a scripted event that is, you know, an actual institution, a tradition in this country where everybody understands how it's supposed to go. It's choreographed. The president says a bunch of things. He eventually builds up to and the state of our union is strong and everybody stands and applause. And he's going off script and he's like, no, call my office. Yeah, that could have gone really badly, but it didn't. Because he had the facts on his side and he knew that going in. And it was a pretty deft move by him. Yeah. And just to underscore that, because the part that's getting the most attention is the fact check on this, which is unimpeachable. Rick Scott had an 11 point plan to rescue America. And I'm sure people are sending that around right now, which made very clear that all federal legislation um, every five years sunsets uh, and Congress has to pass it again. So Biden was right about his facts. But the part that I think isn't getting enough notice is the the back end of that clip where Biden then got the GOP to stand up in support of Social Security and said, now it's off the table, which is incredibly important strategically as we head towards this debt limit fight. So like yeah. really smart stuff for him. And I think this is a reminder that this guy spent three plus decades in that building and knows what he's doing. Yeah. I mean, he did some deal making right there in front of the American people and uh, very impressive. A part of Part of what I find so funny is that some of the reason that there's so much outrage by the Republicans is they're, they're like, that's not fair for you to use Rick Scott's plan against us. Right. We don't even like Rick Scott. He was the head, I mean, of, the, was the head of the National Senate campaign committee. The, yeah, so, yeah, yeah, like he was the guy a, in charge of character. electing members yeah. to the Senate. And yeah. he's, by the way, also the senator from Florida. It's like a right. pretty big state. And so like they do this to us all the time, right? Like right. they'll take like... 
like if somebody what were those people who went and they like um defaced the mona lisa or something because yeah, yeah, I, I don't remember what they were yeah, protesting protest. yeah. but they were like you know sort of kind of technically on the left i guess right. so they'll just like you know treat people like you and me like we're running around to the louvre with a can of paint all the yeah, time this is what i call the ben shapiro which is find the most extreme version of the left and say that the left has to own every person who's of the left sometimes not even in the left but then on the other side they're actual president of the United States and front runner for the nomination next time will do every crazy thing in the book. And they'll, they don't want to own that. And the guy's the Senator from Florida. Right. But on top of that, it ain't like this is a fringe idea in the Republican party. Yeah. Everything is like go to heritage, go to Cato, go to the American enterprise Institute. What are they proposing? Right. So you've got all that going on. And, you know, Axelrod tweeted that, you know, he says I was there in 09 when a member of Congress shouted, you lie, which is what you're uh, referring to. And he says that congressman was roundly rebuked by Democratic and Republican leaders. Now it's the norm. And all the disruptors get is a half-hearted shush from McCarthy. And he's referring to McCarthy, who admonished his colleagues, sort of. uh, And he kind of mouthed no a couple of times, maybe three or four times. And that's basically what we get here is he's, you know, he's not really the speaker. I don't know, you know, what do we call him, Jason, at this point? He's like the acting speaker. (laughs) He's like the speaker until like two people are like, I don't want you to be speaker anymore. Right. Right. It's a bit of a shaky deal. Yeah. So let's move on to actually some substance here, because Biden, I don't even know where to start, honestly. Like Biden did so much so well. My jaw was honestly on the floor watching the speech. Jason, what were some of the highlights for you? Um, Well, before I even get into the, the two highlights that maybe haven't been talked about as much that I want to talk about. I think it's important for people to remember that part of what made this so different is that when people come in in their third year to give a state of the union, it is rarely the case that the wind is at their back because what has usually happened, right? They've usually just gone through a midterm election, which means they've usually just gotten their ass kicked, like no matter which party they are, right? Like that's what happened to Clinton. That's what happened to Obama. That's, you know, it didn't even what happened on the West Wing. It's even on fictional presidencies. (laughs) That's how it works, man. Like you come in with your hat in your hand and you're like, okay, look, let's all work together. I know that when I came in, one party was in control and I was, I was acting pretty big and probably I got a little big for my britches. I bet it irritated some of you, but I'm, I'm here to be conciliatory. But Biden is in there like, Let's finish the job, y'all. Like people yeah. are happy with what I'm doing. And that uh, so while Biden performed amazing, we should keep in mind that he also had the advantage of all the people who are watching this and listening to this right now who got out and worked really hard and knocked on doors and delivered that victory so that he could have the wind at his back. Now, a couple of things that he got the chance to talk about that we haven't heard talked about that much as highlights from the speech that I really like. The first, uh, antitrust. You know, he said, let's finish the job, pass the bipartisan legislation to strengthen antitrust enforcement to prevent big online platforms from giving their own products an unfair advantage. I don't think we talk about this near enough. Ravi, you know how how I feel about this. Um, I'm as guilty as anybody of doing the lazy thing and being like, I'll just get it from Amazon. Right. Um, but I feel bad about it each time because I recognize that they're driving out uh, all sorts of other competitors. And I, I do try to occasionally order directly. But it's look right now these huge companies uh, that's not even true in the past it was like these huge companies that are running all of our tech like they weren't doing evil but we're starting to see plenty of evil we're starting to see and we're going to talk about these twitter hearings later we're starting to see the malfeasance from from musk we're starting to see and, and like at the end of the day 
this is something that I think Republicans should care about too. Like you should talk to your Republican friends about this because if you're concerned about big government, you should be equally concerned about big business driving out small business. Um, that's the first thing that uh, yeah, it's he good politics about. and good policy. The antitrust, absolutely. So. And then you, it's you like have that, you American have the, dream stuff. Yeah, you have Lena Khan at the FTC, and, and I think we talked about this on the pod, like the whole idea of the non-competes and the abuse of the non-competes. The president of the United States talked about non-compete agreements in the mm -hmm. State of Union address, like such a practical concern for a lot of people, as we've talked about. That was my that was my second point that I loved that he brought oh, I didn't up. mean it's to steal your like, thunder. Yeah. No, no, it's quite okay. It's it's quite okay. We'll stay friends. But um, you know, that calling out what is not at all a conservative concept that that your your labor can be limited by your employer. And I mean, the point he makes about like that you can't compete against your own burger chain that you've been working at. Now, what's interesting about that moment is that he mentions it. And he talks about the idea that there were 30 million Americans that were under these non-competes. And then all of a sudden, the Republicans start booing because they don't even allow him to get to the end. What he's doing is he's building up to brag about a bipartisan thing that he did with them. And they're yelling, oh, no, no, we changed part of that, right? But it's like they're so used to being offended and outraged that they didn't even get that he was trying to get to a point where he's like, look at this good we did, right. let's finish the job. So Right, well, you have these faux populists like Holly, right, who want to right. force yeah. antitrust against the people they don't like, but don't want to go, go after the meatpacking industry or whoever else, right? Like the the corporations outside of tech, right? Yeah, there were, there were a couple other moments here that I thought were really smart. He mocked Republicans who voted against his infrastructure bill, but still showed up at the groundbreakings. And but, so like, but he did it like real smart, right? Because what he didn't do is he didn't throw it in their face real hard. He, you know, like I remember there was a few years ago where Obama made a mistake in um, it was funny and we liked it, but it was a, it was a bit of a mistake in terms of reaching across the aisle to other voters in the State of the Union where he says, you know, I've run my last election and they all, uh, you know, applaud. And then you could see him. You could see his body language that he didn't want to do it. But, you know, he go he says uh, he goes, I know because I want them both. Like that's an example of like spiking the ball that people like us love but it doesn't really play. Biden did this with a smile. And he's like, I look forward to seeing you at the groundbreakings, which was like just subtle enough that people like you and me are going to get it. But people at home are not going to be like, oh, there he is being all Washington and being yeah. a jerk. It was like perfectly towed the line. Right. And, uh, you know, obviously like the big thrust of the speech was it was populist. He talked about a blue collar blueprint to rebuild America. He talked about levying attacks on billionaires. He talked about how unfair the tax system is. And he defended his economic record. We don't need to go into it, but he's got this paradox where people are actually like economists and the CNBC types are getting on the TV and actually decrying the fall in unemployment <laughs> because it's a driver of inflation. So either he's got this world where employment is great, but inflation is up because those two things are linked or like sometime in the future when inflation is getting under control, potentially unemployment is going up. He has a really difficult hand, but I think he deftly messaged it, which is you, you have to thread the needle in these speeches between trumpeting your success without seeming out of touch with the American people. And I think he did a right. really good job of that. Well, that's a great point because like if you spend too much time talking about how, you know, how great of a job you've done, People are sitting there going like, you know, if, they're, if their life hasn't improved day to day, they're like, this guy doesn't understand what I'm going through. But that's not what he did at all. I mean, getting into the billionaire tax. Now, look, you can be a cynic and you can say uh, the idea that 
well, you know, he bringing the, the billionaire tax idea back up, you know, even though that we've lost the house, so it's not going to pass and we're going into a, you know, his reelection. Okay, fine. But that doesn't mean that he doesn't believe in it. I mean, right. he, he's trumpeting it because he believes in it. I actually at dinner tonight. Uh, so for those who are new to the show, I have, uh, I have two kids, one of which is a nine year old uh, boy named true. And at dinner tonight, we were sitting there talking about the state of the union with true. And I told them about the idea of the billionaire tax. And we walked through the idea of paying percentages. And then we kind of tried to, uh, you know, we try to not like push him too much in either direction. Cause we want to let him come to his own conclusion. But true was like, yeah, I mean, if they have billions of dollars, that doesn't really seem fair, you know. I mean, and it's that simple. And and Biden's just leaning into that. And I think I think people will respond to that as they have in the past. Absolutely. And I think so. Let's talk about something else he did, which was you know, and and just to underscore what you said, this was a speech about selling what he's already done more than teeing up what he needs to pass now. And I think a lot of the stuff he he was talking about doing was implementing things they've either passed or defending things they've already passed, or using executive action for certain things. I think what he realizes with this crazy Congress over the next two years, at least he's not going to get anything done. So he needs to sell what he's done to the American people and implement it well, and then really like hope that we all you know get him across the finish line for the next election. Then we could talk about legislating again if we hopefully uh, hold, you know, hold the Senate and take back the House. What was fascinating, though, was that he he continues to talk about bipartisanship. This is the difference between I mean, the many, many differences between him and Trump. This is a big one is that he gets stuff done uh, and he actually lives the bipartisanship and he really took it to them. Let's look at a clip here. You know, uh, I start tonight by congratulating the 118th Congress and the new Speaker of the House, Kevin McCarthy. Speaker, I don't want to ruin your reputation, but I look forward to working with you. <laughs> I mean, it's classy, you know, like we could feel the way that we feel about McCarthy, but it's hard to, this is a thing about Biden. It's his superpower is that is, it is impossible to paint him as a villain. The Republicans have tried since day one to say that he's like, you know, petting his cat, you know, in, in the Oval <laughs> Office and, you know, like talking about world domination. But he's just simply too likable. And I think this is him at his best. Yeah. And it was a loud laugh, which means people on both sides there laughed and the viewer at home can tell. And there's something about that when when you're saying something about bipartisanship and you get both sides to laugh, you seem bipartisan. Right. And, and what what's so interesting about this is you and I have talked about this before, how the main objective of the Republicans in the first couple years um, of his administration was to deny him the opportunity to fulfill his campaign promise about bipartisanship, because it was really the only thing they could control, right? They didn't control the House. They didn't control the Senate. And all they could really do is in the Senate block things so that he couldn't get big ideas like voting rights or, or guns or any of that passed so that he then could not say, look, I went and I was bipartisan and I got stuff done. That was all they could do. They could only stop him from being bipartisan. But what's so interesting about this is that as you're about to roll through, he 
was able to find ways to get stuff done and then frame those things as bipartisan so that that didn't even succeed so that he could walk in there and say to them, kill them with kindness. Hey, look at all this great stuff we've gotten do gotten done together. Aren't we a great bunch of people? And aren't we just all pals? It was really pretty masterful. Well, you used to joke to, on this podcast about how you can't, we used to, you used to talk about like bipartisanship as an end of itself. And you can't really take the bipartisanships to the bank. But what's funny is he is taking the bipartisans to the bank. <laughs> yeah, he talked yeah. about 300 plus bills that they passed that were bipartisan. I was shocked to even hear that number. And he said, quote, to my Republican friends, if we can work together in the last Congress, there's no reason we can't work together in this new Congress. So, I mean, this guy, it's unbelievable what he's accomplished. And so uh, that's a good opportunity for us to pause. Um, we have some words from our sponsors, but we have a lot to discuss after this short break. We're going to discuss more on the State of the Union, including some surprising reactions from the GOP, including some who could not help but praise him. And then we'll talk about how the GOP embarrassed themselves during the Twitter hearings. There are some clips there that will have your jaw on the floor. Let's go to the uh, some words from our sponsors. Well, long-time listeners of this podcast know I'm a huge fan of Athletic Greens. I've been taking it well before they sponsored this show. And if you've been listening in the past few weeks before we went on a hiatus, you'll know that I was traveling and neglected to bring my Athletic Greens with me. But the great news is I'm now back stateside, have my Athletic Greens, and I feel awesome. I have a little bit of extra pep in my step, and honestly, I need it because you know, we've, we've brought this podcast back. We're now on YouTube and I think I need that extra energy. So it's the first thing I take in the morning. I originally gave it a try because I was feeling low in energy and I wanted a boost for energy for all types of activities, podcasting, fitness, reading, just being at my best. You could take it at different times of the day. I take it in the morning. Sometimes I take it in the morning and at night. And what I've been doing lately is actually taking it instead of taking coffee first thing in the morning. And so if you're looking for a simpler, cost-effective supplement routine, Athletic Greens is going to give you a free one-year supply of vitamin D and five free travel packs. And those travel packs are essential because then you, you won't repeat what I did. You'll take these things with you uh, so that you can keep your routine on the road. And that you get those with your first purchase of Athletic Greens. So if you go to athleticgreens.com slash majority, that's athleticgreens.com slash majority, you can check it out. So I love this company called Rocket Money. And this is a company I actually was going on to sign up for Rocket Money the week they emailed us telling us they wanted to sponsor this podcast. And it honestly is the best of symmetries. You know, I, for example, I got an email this morning from Rocket saying, hey, your Verizon bill is X amount more this month than last last month, and it actually prompted me to look, and no offense to Verizon, to realize that they were jacking out my rate, and I had to figure out why. And that's the kind of stuff you get with Rocket Money. This is a company that actually you can go in, and it's a personal finance app that helps you uh, find and cancel unwanted subscriptions. It also helps you monitor spending, just like what happened with my Verizon bill this morning, and helps you lower your bills all in one place. And what I really love about this is you could just go in and you could find subscriptions that you have and you can go press cancel on those subscriptions and Rocket Money will cancel them for you. So it saves you a ton of time and frustration. No more long hold times with customer service or tedious emailing back and forth. They'll do it for you. So stop throwing away your money, cancel unwanted subscriptions, and manage your expenses the easy way by going to rocketmoney.com slash M54. That's rocketmoney.com slash M54. Rocketmoney.com slash M54. 
All right, a couple other things uh, about the State of the Union. Um, look, like any good State of the Union that's not delivered by President Trump, uh, it, it, it struck a hopeful tone, right? I mean, that's that's one of the jobs of the president is is to say some of the things that Biden said last night, right? To talk about being optimistic and hopeful and forward looking in a nation that embraces light over darkness, hope over fear, unity over division, stability over chaos. But then there, so that's like reaching really high, right? And that's important. But then there's this other thing, this this more pedestrian thing that he did that you really rarely see in the State of the Union that underline the idea that, yeah, he may live in the White House, but he's still a dude who, you know, rode the train a lot uh, and made it home every night to Delaware and like understands people's lives. And what that is, is he talked about stuff that you don't usually talk about in the State of the Union. He talked about how annoying it is when you get your your bill from a hotel and you find out that they charged you for a bunch of stuff you didn't expect. When you, uh, you know, get these user fees on Netflix and things like that. Now, I bet that a lot of the Republicans saw that and they're like, this is pure pandering. Well, okay. I mean, I guess, but part of the job of government is to affect things big or small that are part of people's lives. And if you do that, if you can, if you can clear out some of the debris in people's everyday lives and make things better, even small incremental things, well, then you buy yourself the opportunity, the legitimacy, the credibility to work on some of the bigger things, right? One of the uh, examples of this that I really like that people may not remember um, is, you know, it used to be the case that as soon as you got on an airplane, like for several years after 9-11, like you couldn't use your phone, like basically as soon as you were taxiing, right? Like you, you couldn't use your phone at all, not just a laptop, but your phone, right? And then it was like not till 10,000 feet. And Claire McCaskill uh, got a bunch of briefings from the FAA and others and realized there was actually no good reason for this rule at all. So she didn't pass legislation. She didn't do anything like that. She just asked a bunch of questions and hearings. And that's why that rule changed. And, you know, that may seem like a small thing, but I promise you when that happened, Claire McCaskill got a lot of mileage out of that politically because anybody on airplanes was like, it's really annoying that for the 20 minutes I can't get on my phone. Uh, so when you do things like that, you just buy yourself a lot of credibility with people in terms of your ability to do other things that are bigger. Right. And, you know, there was this moment, I think one of the most salient moments of the night was you had, he had the parents of Tyre Nichols in the audience and he acknowledged them and talked about what that tragedy represents for us as a country and as a legislative body. Let's go to that clip. Join us tonight are the parents of Tyree Nichols. Welcome. There's no word to describe the heartache or grief of losing a child, but imagine, imagine if you lost that child at the hands of the law. Imagine having to worry whether your son or daughter came home from walking down the street, or playing in the park, or just driving a car. Most of us in here have never had to have the talk, the talk that brown and black parents have had to have with their children. Bo, Hunter, Ashley, my children, I never had to have the talk with them. I never had to tell them if a police officer pulls you over, turn your interior lights on right away. Don't reach for your license. Keep your hands on the steering wheel. Imagine having to worry like that every single time your kid got in a car. We all want the same thing. Neighborhoods free of violence. 
law enforcement of enforcement who earns the community's trust. Just as every cop when they pin on that badge in the morning has a right to be able to go home at night, so does everybody else out there. Our children have a right to come home safely. Yeah, he did this a lot during this this portion of the speech where he he used vivid language. He wasn't speaking in platitudes. And I think the debates around law enforcement and policing in this country are filled with platitudes. Back the blue, defund the police, et cetera. And I think the average American's head is spinning and there's polling on this across racial divides, economic divides, et cetera, is that people have complicated views on law enforcement. And there was another part of the speech where he said, look, the average police officer is a good person who's just trying to do their job and get home safe and keep their community safe. And so, and that gets the applause from the GOP, right? And then he says the other part of it, which I think is what most people believe in this balance. He said, but the ones who are bad do a lot of bad. Like they, they can do a lot of destructive things and we need to hold them accountable and we need to hold them accountable, better training and more resources, but we also need to hold them accountable in the strictest sense of the law. And I thought it was so powerful. And when he talked uh, about the parents and he talked about the tragedy in Memphis, he got some Republicans to stand up. Molinaro, Lalota from New York, Tim Scott was quick to his feet. And so this, he, this was just expert level stuff and really emotional and I think truthful, substantive emotional stuff connected to policy expert expert level a plus stuff i i think you know there's a lot of people in our audience who have been trying to figure out what to say to people in their lives who will throw the uh, defund the police at them right and and i think that finally biden sort of gave voice to the way to handle this right and and it what he what he zeroed in on is the idea that that there are very few people in this country who don't want policing in their community. Uh, it's extremely rare, like, like extremely rare. But there are places where what people are worried about is whether they're going to get good policing in their community, right? Because, because there's nowhere you can go in this country where people can't envision a situation or haven't experienced a situation where they need to call the police. And what he's saying is, is that we want to make sure that every time that happens, that it's good policing uh, and it's good policing as often as possible because good policing can really make a difference in people's lives and bad policing can too, but in a really, really uh, tragic way. And so I, I actually, you know, look, I'm not so naive as to think that the Republicans are going to be like, okay, all right, well, let's right. do the right thing on this. Right. Um, but, but I think from a persuading the American public and getting us closer to, to that place, I think you did an excellent job. Yeah. And to underline this, the more concrete we are, the better, right? Because slogans could be appropriated. I know a lot of people who are extremely well-intentioned who are behind a lot of the slogans like abolish ICE and defund the police. And I think what they meant sometimes was often different than what they were painted as. And in part, that's the problem sometimes when you have a slogan and you're not being concrete mm -hmm. about it, what it exactly means. Uh, there were a few other notable moments from the speech that are worth just mentioning. He called on Congress to ban assault weapons. He said we must restore abortion rights and said he would veto any national ban, which are things we would come to expect. Um, he, he took a shot at Xi Jinping from China saying, name me a world leader who changed places with Xi, name me one. So this was just a confident Biden, you know? Yeah. Uh, and then there were some moments, Jason, it's worth turning to, like, I think we're at the take section now of the State of the Union reactions. <laughs> uh, there were a couple of moments here that I think are worth talking about. There are things that happen outside of the speech itself. And I want to start with this, this clip from this uh, comedian named Trey Crowder. 
Uh, and this was this was a clip that he put out when he was driving around in his car before the State of the Union address. And what's hilarious to me is not just how funny this guy is, but just how prescient this clip was. Let's go to that clip. Well, the State of the Unions tonight, you know, we can expect at least a little bit of embarrassing buffoonery for that is the era we live in. Didn't used to be that way. When I was a kid, the only thing you expected from the State of the Union was that it would interrupt must-see TV and you'd have to watch a bunch of crusty whites golf clap for an hour or so. Not the case anymore, mostly because of one faction in particular. Like, will anyone be at all surprised if later tonight, Bobert and Marge get into a who-can-yell-the-loudest-dumb-thing competition, which culminates in them pulling each other's hair out as they roll down the aisleway inside one of those cartoon dust clouds you wouldn't bat an eye meanwhile george santos is in the back like you know my grandfather invented the cartoon dust cloud yeah you might have heard of him walt disney miss you every day pop pop truly these are absurd times but the absurdity feels pretty one-sided to me now you think it's bad now imagine they take power back they take the white house back we're just a few years removed from the state of the union being nothing but t-shirt cannons and hype sirens Right, like the vice president and speaker of the house are going to be replaced with a bald eagle wearing body armor and a drag queen in the stocks and the whole thing's going to headline SummerSlam. That's what they'll do. But I just feel bad for Joe Biden because there's no way to win. You know, no matter what he does, they're going to be mad. Right. I expect Biden to tout a list of his administration's accomplishments, the veracity of which will be utterly immaterial to the reciprocating rage it will inspire from the right. Right. He'll get up there and talk about record job growth and they'll just be like, but what about eggs? fix eggs right you know he'll talk about the importance of education they'll say yeah if you like books about slaves there's nothing he can do he could literally drag that chinese balloon up there and hold it up and take pictures with it like it's a 10 point buck and they'll just say well you know he almost didn't shoot it right their outrage is unavoidable due to its fanciful nature right and that's the difference to me because i'm sure they would say oh the left was plenty outraged during trump's addresses yeah for different reasons though and we were upset because he gave the world's most racist carnival barker the presidential medal of freedom y'all are going to be upset because he didn't even mention how all the m&ms are whores now that shit ain't equitable okay a fact that i hope biden devotes at least a little bit of time to Reminding people that in this country, one side attempts to address actual problems with things like governance and policy, while the other side attempts to stoke made-up problems with things like ignorance and fear, probably because outside of killing Social Security and making sure the rest of us have to work 60 hours a week until the day we die, they don't have much going on in the way of policy, all right? That's the state of shit right now, and the sooner people realize that, the better off we'll be. Love y'all. <laughs> <laughs> uh you gotta love trey crowder so uh like original going way back listeners of this show well no even ravi even before you became a co-host trey crowder was a guest oh really i didn't know that. i had he, never heard of him until i saw this clip i was like this yeah back, back when he just went by the moniker the liberal redneck uh and uh and so people if they want to go way back in their feeds they can find that episode it's it's pretty good we talked about like where he comes from and, and how he came to his views you know despite where he's from and that kind of thing so uh he actually i, I believe what he said was i remember he was like well frankly i i had a gay uncle and I think that had a lot to do with me seeing things differently than other people. Well, in, don't in you also time. have a gay uncle, Jason? Maybe I, that's part and of your And that's, that's the a reason. very famous gay uncle. Yeah. I got, yeah, I got a couple yeah. of them, you know, because yeah. uh, my, my gay uncle married my other uncle. So I got I, now I got two. Um, but look, uh, so Trey Crowder is great. OK, I have a question about one of these things that happened outside the speech. Uh, so we have this clip of Marjorie Taylor Greene uh, walking through the Capitol with um, – walking through the Capitol with a, uh, with a balloon 
And uh, I just don't understand this. I assume it is it's a white balloon. I believe she she labeled it a, a surrender balloon. Um, <laughs> Ravi, do you do you speak MAGA? Like what? Yes. They're trolling. I guess this has to do with the Chinese balloon. Well, what yeah, as our new listeners will know, I spend my day consuming way more right wing media than any progressive ever should because of my work at Lost Debate, which is this media company that I run that basically invites conversations with, you know, sort of, you know, people from the other side. So I consume a lot of content from right wing media. And Jason, let me let me translate this to you. <laughs> she you. is calling attention to Biden's feckless response as she sees it to the Chinese balloon that was over Montana and the fact that he didn't just shoot it down right away because the responsible thing to do there is to shoot down this incredibly heavy piece of machinery that Lord knows what's in it when there are American civilians underneath. That's what the American thing to do is. Oh, okay. All right. Well, thanks. Yeah. Thanks for clearing that up. Brilliant yeah. move by her. Um, she's just like, <laughs> she's just like the, the general lady from meme, you know, right. <laughs> not right. even from Georgia. Like, yeah. Uh, there were uh, some great Velociraptor memes from, I think it was her outfit. The outfits in general were all over the place from both sides of the aisle during yeah. this speech, which were, you know, we're not a fashion podcast, so we won't go mm. into it. Uh, I do want to talk about Mitt Romney. There there was something that we won't play, but he did a his own response to the State of the Union, which I thought was really measured and it was almost way out of West Wing. He was like, here are the things. I, he was like, I like Joe Biden. He's a good guy. Here are some of the things I agree with, and here are some of the things I disagree with. You know, sometimes when I'm praising people like this, I feel like it's almost like this. Um, uh, what is the the sort of hostage? What do they call it? The this right, Stockholm syndrome. Stockholm syndrome. But I actually genuinely think his response was very classy. <laughs> the other thing he did was he spoke to reporters after some altercation with George Santos that he had. Let's go to this clip because it's quite interesting. You just said you don't belong here. Yeah. Why? Why did you, why did you, why did you say, say that? I didn't expect that he'd be standing there trying to shake hands with every senator <laughs> in the president of the United States. That's, uh, given, given the fact that he's under ethics investigation, he should be sitting in the back row and staying quiet instead of uh, parading in front of the uh, president and, uh, and, and people coming into the room. He says he, uh, you know, that he embellished his record. Look, embellishing is saying you got an A when you got an A minus. Lying is saying you, you graduated from a college you didn't even attend. And, and he shouldn't be in Congress, and uh, no. they're going to go through the process and hopefully get him out. And uh, but he shouldn't be there. And, and uh, if he had any shame at all, he wouldn't be there. Why did, did you, you make him? a point to say that, though? I mean, you went, I mean, it was kind of out of your way to. to well, he was say standing that. right there in the aisle, shaking hands with everybody. Did he respond to you? Uh, he, he may have. I didn't hear. Are anything you disappointed he said. that Kevin McCarthy is not calling him to resign? Yes. Okay, a couple things about this. One, one of my favorite parts of this clip is that if you look just be just behind Romney, who has a throng of reporters around him, right behind him is Brian Schatz, the senator from Hawaii, who's an awesome guy. Has, not, has like, he been on this podcast? I've interviewed him for some. No, we keep needing. Yeah. We need to have Brian on. He's yeah. awesome. I love Brian. Um, but and there's like one reporter talking to him because he didn't just talk shit to Santos, <laughs> you know. And uh, well, also, and, it wouldn't be as no newsworthy. Yeah, who would care, right? He's supposed yeah. to not like him, yeah. you know. Um, Brian is awesome because he's aware that like he's the senator from Hawaii. Um, I, By the way, also you got to feel I, we, I, the feeling like people are like, oh, senator from Hawaii, that's so lucky. Oh, but you got to think about that commute. You got to that commute he's got to make. Oh, it's, I've crazy. talked to him about it. It's it's hard, but anyway, so um, 
What I also really enjoy about this clip is that Mitt Romney in his very patrician Mitt Romneyan way is just he's a couple of things. He's like, YOLO, I don't, I don't care about anything. Right. I'm just here. I mean, I, I don't, I don't know if Utah's going to keep me cause I'm not as conservative as they want or whatever, but I'm also very Utah in a way. But then the other, the other part about it is, is this, this very polite way of, of what he said is the Mitt Romney way of being like this fucking guy. Like <laughs> it's offensive to him. It's yeah. offensive to him. And look, like, like, can you believe this fucking tool? Like <laughs> Mitt Romney, many flaws, but he, you could definitely count on him to have more of a backbone than almost every one of his colleagues, especially now yeah, that especially some, now that he some of the colleagues are aspire gone. to be president, right? Yeah. Or, so or I love that. So to sum up this speech, CNN gave a flash poll of its uh, of listeners to the speech or viewers of the speech, and seventy two percent had a positive reaction to the speech. So this is mission accomplished with this speech and you know axarod was talking about this today and he said you know this can sometimes be a sugar high uh these speeches that sometimes they're not enduring in the impressions that they gave but what ax said i thought was really smart which was it's not so much that this one speech changes perceptions it's that we see from biden how he's going to carry himself in the next two years and into the next election and that should give us all hope and give us energy those of us who are here to you know, do our part to help save this democracy and ensure that his legacy lives on. So I think this was a, as much of a motivator for the rest of us. And so lots to be happy about there. Jason, let's turn to these Twitter hearings though. Okay. So like, so that was not the only high profile event happening in the Capitol. Uh, three former Twitter executives testified today before a GOP led house committee uh, and this is now the GOP. Now they're in, in charge and we get a front row seat to see how they handle themselves. And this hearing was ostensibly about Twitter's role in limiting the distribution of uh, the Hunter Biden laptop story. And there were three people, uh, the chief, former chief legal officer, the former uh, deputy general counsel and the former head of global uh, trust and safety. And they were grilled by these members, but it was one of these moments, Jason, where things kind of backfired in this hearing. Yeah, big time. Um, well, first of all, the whole thing is a backfire, right? Like they are so overplaying their hand uh, because they ran a campaign that allowed them to take the house with ads that were like, stuff is too expensive, right? right? Like, I mean, the entire campaign was about like gas prices and inflation, like stuff is too expensive. And then they win and they're like, and that's why the first thing we're going to do is focus on the president's son's laptop that he turned in to be fixed once. It's And the American people are like, wait, what? Uh, so and they're not even like, wait, what? They're like, I don't, I won't be listening to that. That doesn't well, wait till the COVID stuff me. starts coming through and yeah, Fauci's trotted out. And everybody, I think it's a misreading of the American public. I think the American public is like, look, I am done with COVID politics, right? You know, some people are still dealing with the disease. Uh, a lot of people are dealing with the death and destruction that happened and everything else that happened. But I don't think there are too many Americans who are like, yeah, let's stick our chin out on the COVID politics debates and relitigate all of that. I think most people are exhausted by that. And I think that's going to backfire even more than anything else. Well, this focus on Twitter is politicians, in this case, right-wing politicians, doing what politicians do, which is over-indexing over on the stuff that affects them. Now, not affects their regular lives, but affects them as politicians. When I was the Secretary of State, I, I tell you, it was very hard 
to you know, have conversations with the legislature about policies having to do with elections because every single member of the legislature had been through an election and had been elected. So they all thought that they weren't expert on this policy area and they, and they really, really had opinions. And many of those opinions were really stupid, but right. it didn't matter because they were like over indexing on the thing. And then every time they wanted to talk about it, they never talked about it from the voters perspective. They talked about it from the perspective of the candidate, how things need to be more fair to candidates. And that's what you saw here. They're not thinking about Twitter in terms of like anything other than how it might affect their right wing politics. Right. Uh, and, and that's really, I think, where it backfired, because then that allowed the uh, Democrats on the committee to get into all of these other issues uh, where, you know, for instance, we have Representative Connolly, who sort of summed everything up about this hearing as to why the subject of the hearing made absolutely no sense. Uh, but at the same time, there were actually things about Twitter that might be worth talking about, but they're none of the things that the right wants to talk about. So let's let's hear that clip. It's appropriate for the president of the United States to direct or otherwise influence a social media company to take down its content? I think it's a very slippery slope. Mr. Roth, Ms. Gaddy, Mr. Baker, any evidence that Joe Biden's ever done that? Certainly none that I'm aware of, no. I don't recall anything like that. I'm sorry, that President Biden did what, sir? Has Joe Biden ever called Twitter, to your knowledge, or his White House at his behest to take down content or urge you to take down content? I don't know the answer to that question, sir. Well, I I'm going to have to conclude at least from three of the four, if you don't know. There's no evidence he's ever done that, but there's plenty of evidence Donald J. Trump tried to do that. And um, if we're going to have a hearing about the misuse of social media and the intrusion of government in the content on social media, we've got an environment-rich target, but it's not Joe Biden. It's Donald J. Trump, and of course, we don't want to talk about that. We don't want to talk about Russian bots and Russian fabrications using fake accounts on Twitter to a political purpose, and it's not to help elect Democrats. Um, and we don't want to talk about four years of Donald Trump manipulating the truth and trying to manipulate social media and threaten it, uh, or directly to try to shape it by taking down content because it was critical of him personally. Um, and that's what we ought to be talking about as we move forward, not the subject of today's hearing. I yield back. So this is unbelievable. Is the, the thing that the GOP can't ever explain is that all of this stuff that they claim happened, that they have no evidence of, of the government meddling and bullying around Twitter, happened during the Trump administration. <laughs> so they're like, the federal government's bullying Twitter, and it's like Trump appointees that they're talking about. And then when Biden's in office, there's very simple questions. Did Biden or anybody in the Biden administration try to bully Twitter into taking down content? The answer is no. But the answer is clearly yes from Trump. Like there was one example after another in this hearing of Trump trying to get content taken down that often wasn't even a threat to national security. Like it's just stuff that's embarrassing to him. I also think that one of the problems they have here is that this is not going to be a hard sell to the American people because I don't think the American people will have a hard time believing that Donald Trump, who is obsessed with Twitter, uh, right. was 
like really into trying to control what's on Twitter and that Joe Biden, who I'm sure has never logged into his own Twitter account in his entire life and doesn't care what's happening on Twitter, doesn't care what's happening on Twitter. <laughs> so yeah. I, it, it's intuitive. Yeah. And reminder to everybody and, and to the, the Midas Mighty who are hearing us for the first time. I talk about this a lot. The right wing controls media. They talk about how the left wing controls media. And yes, there are certain segments of the media that are more left wing than right. But if you go to go to Spotify, go to Apple Podcasts, what are the top 10 podcasts? You're going to see Rogan. You're going to see Ben Shapiro. You're going to see people like that. If you're like, okay, what's the most watched cable news network by far? It's Fox News. Who owns Twitter? As you know, a self-described Republican who is donating money to Republican uh, causes and calling out the woke mod. mob. Even Facebook, if you look at uh, uh, Zuckerberg's chief policy aide, he's a former Bush aide. You know, somebody very close to the Republicans and, and Kaplan. So this is this is a right-wing let, media ecosystem. Let me add, as somebody who lives in Kansas City, turn on the AM dial at literally any time of the day and go to any station that's not about sports. And or Sinclair Broadcasting, yeah. you know, yeah. So, uh, so, so, so that was that was Connolly. AOC uh, had, you know, she basically opened with, I think, a, a really important question about whether Trump himself <laughs> violated the terms of Twitter and whether they made an exception to keep him on. So it's the exact opposite of what was being alleged. Let's go to this clip. Into it, Miss Navaroli. Let's talk about something real. I'd like to show you a tweet posted by former President Trump about my colleagues and I on July 14th, 2019. It says in part, quote, why don't they go back and help fix the totally broken and crime infested places from which they came? Then come back and show us how it's done. These places need your help badly. You can't leave fast enough. I'm sure that Nancy Pelosi would be very happy as quickly to work out free travel arrangements. A day or two after that, uh, Donald Trump publicly uh, incited, you know, violence at a rally, uh, targeting four congresswomen, including myself, saying, go back to where you came from. Uh, Ms. Navarroli, as I understand it, you were uh, the most senior member of Twitter's content moderation team, or a senior member of Twitter's content moderation team when this was posted. Um, as part of your responsibilities, did you review this tweet? Yes, it was my team's responsibility to review these tweets. And what did you conclude? My team made the recommendation that for the first time we find Donald Trump in violation of Twitter's policies and use the public interest interstitial. For the first time? Yes. And at the time, Twitter's policy included a specific example when it came to banned abuse uh, against immigrants as in they specifically included the phrase, go back to your country or go, or go back to where you came from, correct? Yes, that was specifically included in the content moderation guidance as and an you, example. You brought this up to the vice president of trust and safety, Del Harvey, correct? I did, yes. And she overrode your assessment, didn't she? Yes, she did. Um, and something interesting happened after she overrode your assessment. A day or two later, Twitter seemed to have changed their policies, didn't they? Yes, that trope, go back to where you came from, was removed from the content moderation guidance as an example. So Twitter changed their own policy after the president violated it um, in order to potentially accommodate his tweet? Yes. Thank you. Um, so much for bias against right wing on Twitter. Yeah, I mean, it was a terrible thing to say to somebody, by the way. I once had a school board member in Nashville tell me that to go back to where I came from. It's It stings, yeah. for sure. Um, well, also... People, you know, the right likes to, um, they like to say things about AOC 
and her former employment as a bartender. Like she sure seemed a lot like a trial lawyer right there. Like she knew exactly what she was doing. It was a pretty yeah. impressive experience. Well, let's contrast her. Okay. So the, the, I have this argument with my brother all the time. So, and I think he might've said it on our pod when we had him on. And for the, the new listeners, my brother is, is uh, a, a Republican. And I hear often that AOC is the fringe of the left and that she's all powerful and all this kind of stuff. And I'm like, okay, let's, let's accept that she has all this power and let's contrast her with a, you know, a person who has the ear of McCarthy, a person who's showing up all over the place in the GOP, who's endorsing candidates like JD Vance, right? Somebody who's, you know, I think outranks AOC at this point on this committee, right? Let's contrast like, this, I what I thought was a very impressive display from AOC with what Marjorie Taylor Greene is doing on this committee in the very same committee hearing. So let's go to this clip. Uh, thank you, uh, Mr. Chairman. Uh, Mr. Roth, uh, please explain to us why Miss uh, uh, Marjorie Taylor Greene or the representative from Georgia was removed from Twitter. Thank you for the question, Congressman. My recollection is that her personal account was banned from Twitter after repeated written notices due to repeated violations of the Twitter rules. Can you add a little specificity to the violation of the Twitter rules? Yes. Again, I didn't have access to my Twitter email, documents, anything that would have let me prepare to answer that in more detail. But my recollection is that the Congresswoman repeatedly violated Twitter's policies about sharing misinformation about COVID-19. She received multiple written warnings about that conduct. She received multiple timeouts related to that conduct. And then ultimately, consistent with the written and published policy, those repeated violations resulted in her account being permanently suspended. Uh, so Mr. It, Chairman, so in essence, I'd like to take a point uh, of personal privilege. Uh, the, it's still my time. We, we'll stop. We'll stop. It's still my clock. It's point still of my order, time. Mr. Chairman. Um, the point of order why, by Mr. Raskin's yeah, I, um, I don't believe that members of this committee have the right to interrupt someone's testimony because their Point name was Point of personal privilege. And you were mentioning my name, Mr. Raskin. You no, know, I understand, but that's not the rule, Ms. Green. I don't think that, a member... That is the rule in, in Congress. Well, then I'd like, we a, can I'd, take a point I'd like of the parliamentarian privilege. to rule on whether any member of this committee has the right to interrupt a witness's testimony because they mentioned the name of a member of Congress. You mentioned my name, Mr. Raskin. Yeah, I'm not testifying. Chair recognizes Ms. Green. Thank you, Mr. Chairman. For your Chairman. point of privilege, thank, very th briefly. Thank you. Um, uh, for Mr. Roth, who, who made you in charge of what is true uh, and what is uh, not uh, true? Uh, we'll, uh, Does she get to reopen her no, question? No, okay. that, that we'll, we'll, we'll go back to Mr. Mr. Gomez. And, and Mr. Gomez, please remember the, the decorum of the committee. Uh, the clock, we'll restart the clock now. We, you didn't lose any time. Chair recognized Mr. Gomez. Thank you so much. Um, the gentle lady from Georgia was suspended from Twitter for, for knowingly and consistently spreading conspiracy theories about COVID-19 vaccine, right, which is shameful, shameful, especially in a pandemic where millions, a uh, million people have lost their lives. Um, with that, I yield my rest of my time to the gentleman from New York, Mr. Gold, uh, Goldman. Thank you. Okay, so there's so much going on here that's so fun. Uh, first of all, this clip has a real My Cousin Vinny vibe oh to God, it, yeah. right? Uh, but it's like in reverse because she's the one who is getting up and like she has no idea really how the courtroom is supposed to work. So like she gets up to deliver like that part where Joe Pesci, they're like, okay, your turn to deliver your opening. And he walks up and he goes, everything that guy just said is bullshit. 
<laughs> and the judge is like the the members of the of the court will uh, will disregard everything uh, with, with the exception of thank you, <laughs> you know. So like, so the chairman is like like Raskin, who's the ranking member, is like, like, hey, like she, God she bless talk. Raskin, by the way. The guy is like, yeah. honestly, like. He's like holding it together. It's like he's clearly not well, and he's still oh, fighting the good fight. Jamie Raskin is a wonderful dude who, for those who don't know and you know are listening and couldn't see the clip, I mean, Jamie Raskin is, is undergoing cancer treatment. I remember talking to Jamie Raskin a few years ago, uh, and all he wanted to talk about was the robust intern program that uh, he had created. I mean, you know, we were hanging out in his office. Like, that was what he – like, he's really excited because he's a professor by trade. But anyway, uh, you know, Raskin says – hey, look, she doesn't get to talk. And the chair knows that she doesn't get to talk. And he knows that the parliamentary rules say that she doesn't get to talk. But he also knows that she's Marjorie Taylor Greene and she's got like a, a, a billion truth social followers or whatever. And he's like, I don't need that headache. So he's like, you go ahead and do your point of privilege. Do it briefly. And then she just goes, hey, have I reminded anybody in the last 20 minutes that I am totally crazy and the best part of it jason is the body language of her republican colleagues around her just you could just see the oh, life yeah. getting sucked out of them and i'm like you deserve every bit of this he lets her go for a second and then he goes all right you other guy do your thing and then has to say to him remember the decorum like he didn't do anything wrong and he knows that that guy's not really saying he did anything wrong so anyway that was delicious uh, but now let's go to a person who is crazy, but much more skilled and tactical and therefore much more frightening. And that is Jim Jordan. So uh, Jim Jordan decided that he was going to throw a little chum uh, to the people out there on Reddit and, you know, uh, 4chan and all this stuff. Let's see if I can't get a conspiracy theory going about security clearances at Twitter. Uh, now, we're going to play this clip and then uh, we'll talk a little bit about security clearances because there's a real possibility that he's successful and he gets this yet unnamed conspiracy theory going and we want people in this audience to be able to respond to it. So let's go ahead and, and listen to this clip from Jim Jordan. The government tell you that the Biden laptop story was fake? No, sir, they did not. Did they tell you it was hacked? No, sir, they did not. On October 14, 2020, Twitter blocks the New York Post story on the Hunter Biden, uh, the, the New York Post story on Hunter Biden and suspends their account. The night before... FBI Special Agent Elvis Chan sends you an email. The email says this, heads up, I will be sending a teleporter link for you to download 10 documents. It's not spam. Please confirm receipt when you get it. Two minutes later, 6.24 p.m., you respond back, received and downloaded, thanks. What were those 10 documents? Twitter didn't give me access to my laptop, but Special Agent Chan has said publicly, and the FBI has confirmed that those documents did not relate to Hunter Biden, and that's my recollection of that. What did they relate to? My interactions with Agent Chan and with the FBI almost entirely focused on what the FBI called malign foreign interference, things like Russian troll farms and Iranian involvement in the elections, not on any type of domestic Any of the activity. information on there classified? No, sir, I do not hold a security clearance, and so I would not have received any classified information. Who does hold a security clearance? I'm, gonna, I'm just going to second email here. I'm just curious about this. Uh, what I propose is that 30 days out from the election, this is, a, this is another email to you from Mr. Chan. 30 days, get, we get uh, temporary clearances. You pick who they are. Who were the people at Twitter who had a security clearance? To be honest, sir, I'm not sure. And we never ultimately followed through on this plan to get temporary clearances. Did anyone at Twitter have a security clearance? 
It's my understanding that at least some current or former employees did hold clearances, but I wasn't certain about Ms. that. Ms. Gaddy, do you know if anyone took up Mr. Chan's offer to hand out security clearances 30 days before the 2020 election? Not that I'm aware. So we don't know how many people had security clearances. Twitter, do we know? Mr. Baker, Mr. Gaddy, and Ms. Gaddy, anyone know how many people on Twitter had a security clearance in the 30 days prior to the election? I don't know the answer to that question, Ms. sir. Ms. Gaddy? I do not know. Mr. Roth, you don't know? No, sir. Well, how about the last one? Ms. Navaroli, do you know? No. I mean, yeah. it seemed like the offer was to sort of just hand them out like candy. I just wondered who had them. No one knows? Okay. One of the things for new listeners to the show that we take pride in here is that while we take great exception to the things that the folks on the right say, and sometimes we find them funny, what we don't do is we don't underestimate the effectiveness of these things. If you were to ask uh, a, an artificial intelligence to come up with the perfect ingredients for something to you know, catch fire as a conspiracy theory on the right, it would probably involve people at a social media company getting security clearances from the FBI within 30 days of an election. So Jim Jordan is on to something here in terms of the ability of something like this to catch fire as really fiery, useful bullshit for his side. But let's actually talk about what this is because it could become a thing. Uh, Ravi, I assume when you worked at the UN, you probably had a security clearance at some yes. level, right? Yeah, of course. Like a, a secret or a TS? What, T what did you have? Uh, SCI. Okay, that, like, so for those listening, that's like a very high one. It's a top secret, secure compartmental information clearance, right? It's like really high. Uh, that's the same clearance that I had. For those who uh, are new to the show, I'm a former Army intelligence officer, uh, and, uh, and I had a TSSCI when I was in Afghanistan. Now, there's a reason that people would be given a security clearance at Twitter 30 days before the election. And the reason is really simple. It's that no matter which side you're trying to protect from foreign interference, if you have to share information with people at Twitter about foreign interference in order to keep them from allowing that, like, let's use an example. Let's say North Korea does a deep fake of Donald Trump. Uh, well, you know what? Let's say they do a deep fake and it looks like the actual video that was rumored to have been to have existed in 2016 that it turns out nobody's ever seen. Right. But let's say they make it seem like it's real and the FBI needs to tell Twitter, hey, you can't publish this because it's not real. It's a foreign actor trying to influence our elections. In order to do that, they have to show some of the of the evidence to Twitter, which means it's it's not the evidence that's going to be protected. It's sources and methods. Right. It means that there might be ways to discern from that information how the FBI or the CIA or whoever got a hold of this and who they got a hold of it from. And that's the stuff that would be classified. And so in order to do that, they're not, as Jim Jordan says, handing out security clearances like candy and jim jordan you know why they're not because all of these senior members who are in charge of security didn't, didn't have, have security clearances but yeah jason it, it it's well to one last thing though it is an invitation for people to go through a background check and an investigation to receive a security clearance that's what it was right. at which yeah. no one took them up on well let's explain why this would be the case first of all trump's fbi his own fbi director right. Right. So let's put that aside for a second, because obviously the deep states after Trump, his own people, whatever, <laughs> like he's yeah. to pick better. But the Republican led Senate Intelligence Committee released a five volume report on their investigation into Russian interference in the U.S. elections. Who was chairing that committee? It was Richard Burr. Then it was Marco Rubio, who as acting committee head said, quote, no probe into this matter has been more exhaustive, end quote. 
Now, what did they find, Jason? Volume one, there's, by the way, there are five volumes, right? Volume one, quote, an unprecedented level of activity against state election infrastructure by Russian intelligence in 2016. The activity occurred in all 50 states and is thought by many officials and experts who have been a trial run. Volume two, Russia's use of social media. The committee found that the IRA sought to influence the 2016 U.S. presidential election by harming Hillary Clinton's chances of success and supporting Donald Trump at the direction of the Kremlin. Now, this sounds like some you know, nation op-ed. This is the Senate Intelligence Committee led by Republicans. And they also said, quote, Russia's goals were to undermine the public faith in the U.S. democratic process, denigrate Secretary Clinton and harm her electability and uh, potential presidency. They talk all about uh, social media activity, et cetera. Then they make recommendations. One of the recommendations is that social media companies work to facilitate greater information sharing between the public and private sector and among the social media companies themselves about malicious activity and platform vulnerabilities that are exploited to spread disinformation. And they talk about the need for collaboration mechanisms between these companies and the intelligence community. That is exactly what was going on here. So Jim Jordan is pretending like this is some conspiracy. It's literally laid out in a Republican-led report that Republicans themselves bragged about as being the most exhaustive report on the matter. I'm sorry. This is completely fraudulent. Well done. Well said. All right. Well, that brings us to the end of, of this first episode uh, on, the, on the Midas Podcast Network of Majority 54. I had a lovely time. Uh, so, much yourself. so much fun. So much fun. I'm pumped. Uh, we're having a great time. Hopefully, the listeners are as well. Um, let's let's do this real quick before we go. Uh, let's refresh, or let's let's for those of us, those of you who are new to the show, um, we want to just tell you a little bit about what the show is because we want you to stick around and, and listen to it uh, in the future as well. Which is, you know, what we've been doing um, for the last couple of years on this show is we focus on the fact that 54% of the country consistently votes in a progressive way in elections, and yet we always treat it in our lexicon and our media and our culture as if progressives are the minority. And so we are very apologetic about it and we don't work on expanding our majority. And that's really, that's really what Ravi and I are about. You know, we have run campaigns in red states. We've run them and lost. We've more often run them and won. Uh, and, and as a result, like we are believers, not just in the idea of being really progressive, but also in the idea of making our case to others and actually trying to win people over. We have this really radical view that this argument can be won and that for the future of the country, just based on the math, we actually have to win it. And our objective is to equip uh, the listeners of this show to be able to do that in their daily lives with their family members, with their coworkers, with their acquaintances, with the person you know because your kids go to school together or play on the same Little League team. Those conversations are far more effective in persuading people than any TV ad or anything that Ravi and I could say on MSNBC or CNN and have somebody see. It's it's you talking to somebody who you already have credibility with and already have an existing relationship with. And it's our objective to arm you for those conversations. And so that's what this show is. And, and hopefully if that's something you like. Remember to uh, subscribe to Majority 54 wherever you listen to audio podcasts. Just search Majority 54 and please leave a five-star review. Midas Mighty, we're very pleased to be with you and we look forward to being with you for a long time. Uh, and for everybody else, whether you've listened for a long time or listening now, we always close the show the same way. Remember, we all have a platform. Make sure to use yours today. Thanks a lot.